Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. talk about training our dogs to do a behavior versus feel a certain way and you know are we aware of how they're feeling when we train them to do a behavior and do we care how do we know I talk sometimes about emotion as criteria so watching my dog's facial expressions and other behaviors that indicate to me how he's feeling that's an important part of any training process, especially if the training process might be a little bit hard or a little bit inherently laden with tough things. And I think dog trainers too often talk about classical conditioning, which is uh, training training through paired association versus operant conditioning, which is training through consequences. When in reality, these things are, these processes are both happening all the time. We can't actually draw a line between them and actively operate on one and not the other. So we need to know how they're feeling, but how do we know by observing behavior? Therefore, we need to focus on behaviors, in my opinion, in our training process, which would make the training process primarily an operant conditioning process. But if I really care about how the dog is feeling in my process, for instance, if I'm working an aggression case or I'm working uh, with an obstacle like the seesaw or teeter-totter that a lot of dogs feel a little bit upset about, I do care about how the dog is feeling. So how do I make sure that I'm being a good trainer and watching for, for both of these things? Well, first of all, Could we take a classical conditioning approach to help our dog feel better about something um, like perhaps their trigger for aggression or perhaps the seesaw? We we certainly could. Understand that classical conditioning, aka Pavlovian conditioning, aka respondent conditioning, um, has an effect on respondent behaviors. And respondent behaviors are reflexive and the animal doesn't have control over them. So things like pupil dilation, um, pace of breath, salivation, all of those are respondent behaviors. And so when we utilize respondent conditioning, those are the behaviors that we're having an effect on. And that's important. We want to be having an effect on them. But we also want to be selecting operant behaviors from our process, even if we're taking a respondent conditioning approach, to reinforce because that way we can still be building the operant behaviors that we are after, like perhaps banging the teeter um, or accepting the approach of a stranger. So it's important, again, for me to repeat that these are not distinct standalone processes. They're both happening all the time, but in a respondent conditioning process, we can allow operant behavior to tell us where we are in relation to this concept we talk about as threshold. So if threshold is kind of that invisible line between where the dog is comfortable and acting fine and then the dog is flying off the handle or you know barking and lunging or running away from the teeter, 
there's this invisible line between those things. And in order for us to push that line, we always need to be bumping the line. If we stay safely far away from that line, then everybody's happy and it's wonderful, but you don't make any progress. So we need to be bumping that line. And so we need to observe behaviors, operant behaviors, in order to know where we are in relation to that, that threshold line. So I'm going to use a behavior mod example of dog-directed aggression. And then I'll talk about an agility example of the seesaw so that we can kind of talk about how do we do this in practice. So when I'm working with dog-directed aggression, um, I want to take several different approaches. But one of the approaches that I take um, is essentially an operant counter-conditioning approach, meaning that I'm I'm reinforcing specific behaviors in the dog while I hope to be improving the dog's overall emotional state regarding their trigger. So I like to have two dogs on stations and I like to slowly move them closer together. The dogs that are on stations are being clicked and treated for doing behaviors. And what I can have the handlers do is watch the operant responses of their dog on their station to know whether or not it is safe to move the stations closer. So if I say sit and my dog looks around before sitting, there's some latency there, I know that it is not safe to move my stations closer together. But if I say sit and my dog sits immediately, click treat, he's eating, I say down, same thing, spin, he can go through his whole behavioral repertoire and is responding to the food delivery that I'm providing him and everything feels quote unquote normal, then I know that I can move those stations closer together. And if I don't pay attention to that, if I don't pay attention to my dog's operant responses in that moment, then I may push too hard or I may not bump the threshold at all. I may be uncomfortable with the little bit of latency that I see or I may not understand that that latency is telling me to not push forward anymore. So in the example of the latency to the sit response, I would click and treat that response anyway, ask for something else, click and treat. If the, and watch as the dog begins to respond faster and easier, and then when it feels quote unquote normal again, I'm gonna move those stations closer. If at any point, um, you know, the dog has a big reaction, that could happen and you want to just you want to just push pause um, on the situation and come back to it after some, some evaluation. And I do think it's important to note that we may make those errors, right? The dog may freak out. And I am just of the belief that we don't need to panic about that. We need to not be doing it repeatedly. We need to be smart. But honestly, you will make mistakes. Aggressive behavior will happen. The reason that we are so upset about aggressive behavior happening during a protocol is because we understand the gravity of the situation. It's scary. Nobody likes it. We don't want the aggressive behavior to ever, ever be practiced. But it's not actually different from maybe a puppy who has some house training accidents that still grows up to be a perfectly house trained adult dog. Mistakes can happen and you can still build reinforcement for the correct thing over time and have a dog that behaves the way that you would prefer. 
So in the agility example of the seesaw, maybe I'm training the dog to push the board down to the ground and I'm going to allow the dog's behavior to tell me when I can raise height on the teeter um, in, in that kind of bang game scenario. The first thing I'm going to do is use a reinforcement pattern that removes the dog from the seesaw. So I'm going to click and I'm going to throw the food away from the seesaw, allowing the dog to reapproach um, either quickly, slowly, whatever. And I'm going to be I'm going to pay very close attention. And that's an operant behavior. You guys, the dog returning back to the training session, he does that because it has a history of reinforcement. Therefore, it's an operant behavior. Um, He's going to return quickly if he's ready for the next rep. If he's not ready for the next rep or not feeling great, he, there's going to be some latency there and we want to pay attention to those pieces um, so that we know when it's okay to raise height or when maybe we need to reduce height. That little bit of latency, that's okay. You hang out there at the current difficulty level until there's no latency and the dog is coming back and coming back. The only exception being if the dog stops returning or stops offering the behavior itself. Um, that's very important to, to kind of note. Stopping, to, stopping offering the behavior, running away, or maybe, you know, depending on the dog's temperament, getting aggressive towards the teeter, biting the teeter, it's a fairly common problem, which is funny. Um, those would be like the aggression example, you went over threshold, that's okay. Just, I would, I would leave the session personally, evaluate it, come back um, with a better plan once you understand why you went over threshold. And there's that video reasoning again, why you should be videoing at all of your sessions. So I'm also gonna watch how the dog bangs the teeter. Does he come up and immediately shove it down with both front feet with total enthusiasm? Or is he kind of putting one foot up, pushing it down, adding the other foot? You know, what operant behaviors am I getting? And am I comfortable with these operant behaviors? And if my teeter is raised six inches and the dog is perfect and banging it down beautifully and I raise it up to 10 inches and now I'm getting some variation in behavior, I'm going to stay at that level, continuing to reinforce until I see the behavior change. If I'm not seeing it change within a few reps, then I may reduce. I may offer a split by reducing that height again. So paying attention to how they're feeling is as simple as paying attention to what they are doing and what they're offering you within the training session itself. You are always training with, you're always training these operant behaviors um, while trying to keep respondent conditioning in mind. So in your, in your training process, you wanna say, what is my dog making associations about? How is he feeling? but I know that based on the behaviors in front of me, rather than playing this guessing game, trying to figure out, you know, I don't know if my dog likes the teeter or not, he bites it, but I don't know if that's because he loves it or because he hates it. Well, you don't know the answer to that, but you can say biting is not a behavior that I'm after. That's not an operant behavior I want. So I'm gonna make a choice as to whether I need to split back down to where there's no biting or not. So, you are always teaching your dog both what to do and how to feel. You should be paying attention to both of those things. All right, we've got some Patreon questions for you guys. The first one comes from Janine. She says, is it worth the time installing a mute button on my adolescent agility dog? I've got a 16-month-old youngster who loudly cheerleads me on course and anticipates problems in gamblers, etc." 
He comes from a long line of barkers, and at least one littermate is similarly vocal. It doesn't seem to affect his focus much, if at all, and I can live with it, but also without it. Any quick and dirty solutions to reducing the barking or the volume thereof? Thanks for your question, Janine. Um, I think that you're asking a couple of different things here. So the first thing I'm gonna address is your first question, whether it's worth installing a mute button. Um, if you know how to install a mute button, I'd really like to know. <laughs> um, certainly you can teach quiet on cue, you can teach bark on cue, those things are real. But as far as helping a dog to bark less in work, it is not about teaching quiet. Um, it is about understanding the kind of headspace the dog is in when they start barking and avoiding that headspace. The problem with agility is that a lot of dogs can bark and also do agility well at the same time. And if the dog is perfectly responsive, um, has gone through a ready to work type of protocol, I call this arousal testing and soothing, um, I go over it in depth in my worked up online course. Um, if all of that is in place and the dog is barking, then you've probably just got a dog that's going to bark during work. Um, and I personally would not pick the battle. When it comes to sports where dogs are not allowed to bark like obedience, we have to be much, much more mindful of that headspace that the dog is in. And we should also be mindful of the genetics of the dogs that we are purchasing. If you're buying a dog for obedience, you need to look for a quiet line of dogs. It will help you out. Um, if you are bothered by barking during work, like I am, I really don't care for it, then again, you're gonna need to seek quieter lines of dogs. You already have the dog. Dog's already barking, so that's not helpful to you. Um, if the dog is perfectly responsive and fine and also barking, then I would encourage you not to fight that with him. But you mentioned something else, like you said he anticipates problems in gamblers, uh, or you anticipate problems in gamblers. There shouldn't be a reason that the dog cannot respond to distance cues while barking if the dog is actually fine when they're barking. So if you actually are perceiving the dog turning at you and barking at you because you asked the dog to go away, then that's a training problem and it's not about the barking at all. A lot of dogs do the exact same behavior, but they don't bark about it. So being very clear in your training and your cues and making sure that the dog is not barking out of frustration or lack of understanding is really where you should go. And then if the dog is just barking, but working fine, responding to cues perfectly, then I wouldn't personally worry about it. Um, it probably just kind of is the partner that you've got. So thanks for your question. Uh, next one's from Rhea. She says, any thoughts on helping a dog acclimate when moving with the family to a new house? Most dogs adapt well to moving as long as the environment change is not um, producing a reduced quality of life for them. So if you live on an acreage and your dog has, you know, tons of free exercise in nature and then you move to a Manhattan high rise, you're going to have huge problems. You just are because the dog's going to go from having his needs met to being in a stressful place where his needs cannot be met. But if you're going from one suburban home with a yard to another suburban home with a yard, the dog will adapt and adjust 
honestly, quickly and beautifully. Most dogs are highly, highly adaptable. What they adapt least well to is um, switching humans or families rather than switching homes. So that's kind of contrasted with um, my understanding of cat behavior. Cats tend to get attached to their space and their territory much more so than dogs do. Um, so up your enrichment and up your exercise and your dog should adjust just fine. Uh, last one, Kathy says, when you've wrapped up a podcast, do you have should have talked about forgot to mention moments? Well, sometimes I do, Kathy. Not not often because I take some pretty good notes and go off of my notes. But um, if I do, the good news is I can just record another one or I can pop over to Patreon and let all of you guys know um, what it is that I missed. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.